Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, if you would. Some of the greatest realities, in fact, we would say probably some of the most of the greatest realities for good or for evil in our universe are invisible. The Godhead is invisible. In fact, it says no one has seen God at any time. Obviously, we have seen him in Jesus. But God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God is invisible. Um, our faith is invisible. You can't really hold faith in your hand or measure it by anything external. The devil is invisible. Spiritual warfare is invisible. In fact, some of the greatest realities are realities that we take by faith, which itself is invisible. <laughs> um, why is it tonight that we seldom or rarely on any given day or any given circumstances that we face, why don't we think about the invisible world? Does it matter? I would tell you it does greatly, but I want to tell you why, or at least part of the reason why to us it doesn't as much as it ought to. I don't know if you know who are familiar with the name Immanuel Kant. He was a German philosopher back in the 1700s. And at that time, he argued for what he called scientific rationalism. And what that simply means is he argued that we can't really prove in any way, shape, or form that God exists because you, there is no empirical evidence that he does. In other words, you can't talk to him, see him, touch him, have a conversation with him. And so therefore, it really wasn't wise for us as human beings to believe that there's any credible reason why that we should think that God exists. That belief that was starting to grow in the 1700s has blossomed and flourished. In fact, I would say has become dominant over the last 300 years to the point where the reality has become this, that there is no spiritual reality. Kant did not believe that if you couldn't see it, it wasn't real. That's what he believed. So you couldn't believe in spiritual things. You couldn't believe in God and angels and demons and spiritual warfare or any things that we know that the Bible teach. He would say that they don't exist. And you can't prove anything unless you use the scientific method, the five points of it, how it's observable and all the things that go along with it. And he said if you couldn't use that method to prove something, then it really didn't exist. And because of that, the vast majority of our world, although they say religiously as Catholics and Christians and other religions that they believe in God and they believe in the spiritual world, most people what I live on a daily basis on what I call a partial reality. There's two parts to reality, the lower level, which is the earth, that which you can see, which is physical, and then the upper level, which is God, the invisible world, which you cannot see. Both of those together, according to scripture, make reality. Most of the world function as partial reality believers, meaning they believe in everything they can see, and the part that they can't see has little to no bearing at all in any way they think, shape, or form about this world or any event that takes place in their lives. Now, the astounding point of all of that is, is that unfortunately, too many Christians aren't far behind in that stat. That we believe all those things and we know that they exist and the Bible teaches it, but to be honest, it doesn't have any part of any reality or any trouble, crisis, problem that we ever face. It's not something that we would really give much or any thought to. 
And sometimes, as one author said, I read, and that's the reason why we turn to the iPhone and not the throne (laughs) when we have problems. Um, Our world, and this is important for so many reasons, I'm only going to touch a few, is infected and affected by the church, in the church by that very view of Kant. That view has flattened our faith, weakened our struggle against worldliness, and for many people, it has all but canceled their spiritual and most of all their prayer life, is where I want to get to tonight. Now, that's different than the, pages, the people in the pages of Scripture, because in the A&E, or the ancient Near East, Everybody, no matter what your religion was, pagan or not, um, everybody believed in a spiritual reality. Everybody believed that there was more to this world than what I could see or what I can touch or what I can feel. Everybody did. Now, they believed in it in different ways, and most of it was false and anti-biblical, but they did believe in it. There was no having to take the time to convince anybody of those realities like we would have to do today. They lived in what I call a full reality, not a partial one. And they believed that everything that took place in your life had more reasons or explanations to it than what you could see. We come to a passage in 2 Kings, as I turn to have you turn there, in chapter 6, and we're going to take a look at it in a little bit of detail, and then we're going to flip over at the end in Ephesians and do some things there in a very similar passage, which probably won't strike you that way at the beginning. But chapter 6 and verse 8, is a story, we're going to start reading a little bit further down there in verse 11 in a moment, but this is a war story. This is about a campaign. This is about the Syrian army coming, attacking Israel. And they have a problem because every time they want to attack somewhere, they can't because Elisha the prophet is telling people ahead of time where the Syrians are going when he doesn't even live remotely anywhere near there. And so everybody's wondering, why is it that we go to attack and have these raids and everybody knows we're coming? It ruins everything. The Syrians are getting angry. And they go this, because Elisha knows what you're talking about in your secret chamber. In other words, somehow when you're talking in secret, Elisha can hear it and knows every bit about it. So he ruins everything. So the king says, listen, where is he at? Because he's done. We're going to kill him. So he says, well, the prophet, he always lives in Dothan. And so they take an army there, and in verse 11 it says, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is the king for Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord. O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I might sin and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there... Now, underline this, and I'm going to tell you why. Horses and chariots, underline that phrase if you do that sort of thing. And a great army, and there came by night and surrounded the city. So I want you to, I'm going to tell you in advance how to think, all right? We're going to see two things. We're going to see both realities. We're going to see a bunch of people who only live in the lower level and have partial reality and can only see what they can see with their physical eyes. That's what, but we're going to see through this passage, there's another world, And not everybody sees it, and therefore, they don't respond to life and the events in it rightly. All right? He went and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, I'm sorry, wrong text, wrong verse, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army, see here it again, with horses and chariots was all around the city, 
And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he looks out the window overnight, and this whole little house and everything around it has been surrounded by an entire army, and they're marked by horses and chariots. Horses and chariots, in this case, physical. Here's what that means. It's the most latest technology. It's the highest level of warfare that you could have. When you have horses and chariots, you have an incredible advantage. And every time that you have an advantage, in that case, you almost always win. And there's no... So in other words, he's telling them, hey, we're surrounded. They have the greatest technology and all the weaponry out there. And we are hopeless. It's you and me and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them with horses and chariots. We are in serious trouble. That was the Walker version. He said, now watch, don't be afraid. Now, you want to say, that's just a joke. Well, why, why would you not be afraid? Look out the window, right? Well, because there's more to it than that. He says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, you've got to think that that is the most ridiculous statement ever made. There's two of you in a house with no horses or chariots or no one else. Outside is an incomplete Huge army with all that they have, but we outnumber them. And you say, are you kidding me? No, he says, I'm not. And then Elisha said, Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, listen to this prayer. Please open his eyes. Remember that, that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold. In other words, get this. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, here's what only having an earthly reality does. You look at circumstances that look hopeless and that you're surrounded. But when you bring the top level, the invisible world, when you can see that, you'd find this, that what you think is true, the reverse is absolutely the honest truth. You're not surrounded. They are. Now, isn't that crazy? Knowing and seeing the invisible completely changed everything the servant thought and felt about reality. Changed it all. Now, here's the pattern, and I'm going to tell you because we don't have time to do it all tonight. 2 Kings wants you to read this story like any other Bible tip on how you study the Bible, Right? Nothing is an isolated story that isn't connected to all the other things, especially in that book, if not beyond. Second Kings has a theme running all the way through it about horses and, fire and chariots that are physical ones and there are spiritual ones. The first horses and chariot in this entire book is a story that you're well versed with because you heard it as a child, and it's about the story of Elijah. He is going to be taken up to God into heaven without dying. And Elisha is with him, and he keeps going from city and city and telling Elisha, you don't have to come any further. He goes, by, you know, by God's grace, I'm going to keep following you until you die. And he does. And so eventually he gets outside of Jericho, and the Bible says that Elijah tells him that when the fire chariot comes, what do you want to have happen? He goes, I want your mantle and a double portion of your blessing. And he goes, if God gives it to you and you see me, when it happens, God will grant it to you. And so right when they're talking, they're walking, it says, lo and behold, the chariots of horses and fire come down and it separates Elijah and Elisha apart from one another. And Elisha, Elijah is taken up in it. Elisha sees him, his mantle falls. He picks it up, strikes the water. It parts like the Red Sea in the Jordan. 
And he walks back over and everyone looks and says, oh, now Elisha has what Elijah had times two. It starts out, the story is, see, when God's blessing on us and you can see reality, you can see invisible things nobody else can see in those times, right? And so the first horses and chariots are from heaven with God. And then you see the next story is, guess who walks up or rides up, I should say, with horses and chariots? Well, chapter five is Naaman the Syrian. He has leprosy. Now with all of his power and technology and superiority, as far as weaponry and all this goes, he still can't handle his own problems. But he's got horses and chariots. And in fact, numerous times in the story of chapter five, it says he has them. And then back and forth through other chapters, ours in chapter six, the very next chapter after our story in chapter seven is about the Syrian army coming back after all those years. And it says God scares them away. And you know how he scares them away? They hear the sound of a mighty army and all of their horses and chariots. They weren't even there unless you think they are visible, which that's what the Bible wants you to think. That they didn't hear horses and chariots physically because there weren't any, but there were invisible ones and they heard them and it scared them. So they left everything. And you know the story, the four lepers come through, call everybody and they have, instead of having a famine, they have a feast and God does all these amazing things. But the stories all throughout 2 Kings are all comparing this reality, visible horses and chariots with visible ones. Why? Because here's what Israel was supposed to think. When you had a king in Israel in Deuteronomy 17, and you read verses 11 through 16, here's what a king was to be like. He was not to multiply horses and chariots because he was to depend and trust on God for the battles. He wasn't to collect a large army and have all the weaponry because they needed to have the battles fought by God. And when they had invisible faith to believe that, you'll find if you read, and I have studied all of the battles in the entire Old Testament, and I would tell you 80% of them or more, Israel didn't do anything to win. The second most likely battle, which was another 15%, is that they did something, but not until it was already won and God had mostly wiped them out and they did the mop-up work. But almost the vast majorities of battle, Israel didn't do anything to win. God did it all. And that's how he wanted them to believe. He wanted them to believe that he would fulfill his promises if they would trust him and do exactly what he said. Now, our passage is the story of a prophet of God and his little servant. And here's what it says. When you can see the invisible, ready? The first thing is you don't have to fear. Elisha says to him, he's out of his mind. Alas, behold, those are emotive words. He is completely fearful and out of control. Why? Because he only lives on and practices daily Partial reality. So ask yourself tonight. Have you, give yourself, I call it, a reality check. How do you function every day? When you have crisis and problems and bills you can't pay, you know what, and so-and-so is, is, is hurting, and, and you know what, we have a problem in our family, our marriage, someone is sick, I love, I don't know how this is going to turn out. 
How do you respond? How are your emotions? How, are you afraid? Does anxiety overcome you? Are you easily depressed because you look out at reality as you can see it and say, you know, this is hopeless. How this is never going to turn around. I've been down this road so long. And part of the reason is, is here's why. We can't see the invisible. We don't see the invisible. We see what's in front of our face, and all we can see is that we're surrounded. And then I wrote down on my, on my notes, surrounded by bills, surrounded by hopelessness, surrounded by marital turmoil, chronic health issues, sinful temptations that we are constantly defeated by, and we wonder why, because we function on partial reality. If you have the time, take the time, because it's worth a study to read Hebrews 11 with a different set of eyes. But what you'll find from the very beginning to the end, and all the people that were marked by faith, in fact, Hebrews 11 starts out telling us that faith is believing in the things that are invisible and what you cannot see. That's how the whole chapter starts. And all throughout the chapter, it talks about, here these people had great faith, and here's how, because they believed in the promises when they couldn't see them. When they said, God, I'm going to give you this, and and they don't have it. When Abraham and and Sarah didn't have a child, and God said, I'm going to give it to you, and they couldn't see it. They got to be 190 years old, and it hadn't happened yet, but they still believed. Moses, it says, he went out from Egypt and didn't turn back. Why? Because he saw him who is invisible, and over and over and over All throughout Hebrews 11, here's what it says that marks the people of God, is that daily they can see what no one else can see. We sang this song tonight. Did you ever ask yourself the tons of times you've sung this song, I want to see Jesus. You know that you can't see him. Is the song saying, I want to see Jesus physically? Well, it might be if they're talking about maybe someday when you go to heaven. But what if it means I want to see him now? What if I want to see him now? Do you have the eyes to see him now? Because if you did, you would respond to life and everything in it daily differently. We wouldn't feel like we're out of control. We would know things are always in control in our lives. Now let me tell you the validity or, or how this works. You might say, well, Pastor Walker, how do I know if I function on a full reality basis, not a partial one? One of the ways that you can know that and measure it in your own life is this. How much in the way that you pray? Prayer, I would say to me, in my mind, is one of the greatest expressions of a believer who's living every day in full reality. Why? Because to get on your knees and spend 15, 20, 30 minutes in prayer to someone who doesn't talk back to you verbally and that you cannot see and have never seen, and that many times when you pray, do not see results right off the bat, you have to have faith. And listen, you know what Immanuel Kant has done? He has got into our wheelhouses and our minds and whispered this lie that praying doesn't do anything. And we begin to see the lie. You know why? Because we don't think anything is really happening unless we can see it. That we don't think God is really up to anything because we can't view it, we can't feel it and touch it, we can't measure it. See, if that's what it takes in our lives, we will never be people who pray. 
That's why when you turn to Ephesians, if you'll do that now, Ephesians takes what we learn in the story in 2 Kings 6 and turns it into some New Testament principles and gives us a different reality check. Let me start by developing it for you as you turn to the book of Ephesians. It's six chapters, so don't worry, we can't get through it all. I'm just going to give you the structure of how you can read it. It starts off in verse 1 and telling us the lower level of reality where they lived. They lived in Ephesus. It says that in verse 1. That's what they could see. That's the geography. That's the earthly map that you can see. But the most important map is not the one that you can write on paper. He's going to give us a cosmic map. And that cosmic map is going to tell us about how to respond to every single thing that takes place on the earthly map, which we can see. Because he says, not only as believers are you in Ephesus, in verse 1, he says that most of all, and most importantly, you are in Christ. Now see, those are two definite, real locations. One of them you can see, Ephesus. One of them you cannot see in Christ. And here's what Paul would say that is the reverse of everything, just like it was in the story in 2 Kings. They thought they were surrounded, but the reverse of it is true. And later on in that story, he says, Lord, close, open the eyes of the people and then blind them. And then he opens them again later and he reverses everything. And now they're no longer the ones that Syrians are, the ones threatening them. Now they have control over them. God has a way when he opens your eyes to make you understand how he can turn around anything. And the reverse of what we think is true, he says in Ephesus, that your major, most important location is not where you live in Hamilton. It's where you live in Jesus. That's what matters. Because that invisible location controls the visible geography and all that goes to place in it, he says. And then all throughout first passage, look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14, It is all those verses. It is one sentence in the Greek. Whoever teaches grammar here would know that this is the biggest run-on sentence in history. There are no punctuation marks. There is one, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. And in it, he describes reality this way. Not only in Ephesus, in Christ, but this term, in him. Chapter 1, verse 4, 7, 10, 11, 13, two times. Why does that matter? Because he describes this. Let me, let me go a little further. He describes this opening section in this way. You have spiritual, and he uses the word spiritual twice in Ephesians. You have blessings that you cannot see. In Hebrew, when you were orthodox, you did what's called the berakot. The berakot was 18 blessings that you said in your prayer every day to God, not asking for anything, but there was a series of 18 things that you would repeat to God every day and bless him. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe and King of my life. Baruch, Atah, he said all 18 of those every day. Paul uses that as an extended berakot in this passage by quoting blessed twice. But the enumeration of the blessings, every single one of them are invisible. Why? Because the foundation of the Christian life, you want to ask how important invisible things are? The foundation of the Christian life is invisible. 
it is invisible. And every blessing that you and I have, right now, we cannot see. And here's what Paul says. I call that blessings in the heavenly places. Do you see that in verse 3? Let me show you how to frame the book and go back and study it based on that. The heavenly phrases, the heavenly places, the invisible world is used five times in Ephesians and in no other place in the entire Bible. Only this epistle. Only this epistle begins with an extended barricade. Only this epistle talks about the heavenly places and the reality and the foundation of it. Only this epistle starts out with giving people the foundation of a spiritual wealth that you have. And so in chapter 1, verse 3, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 6, verse 12, the Bible basically from beginning to the middle to the end is framed by this reality. Here's what you need to know, that you live and have your foundation in the heavenly places. Listen, it's where God is. It's where angels are, and their rankings are principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. They are ranked as far, those are military terms. And that's where good angels and non-elect angels or demons that we, we call them, they all live in the heavenly places and we fight against them. It's mentioned in chapter three, we have armor. Every piece of the armor is not based on, is not based on what Roman soldiers wore. It is based on, read it for yourself, and the servant letters or the servant passages of Isaiah 53 and on, all of the armor pieces are mentioned by the God warrior who was God himself, and he wore all of those pieces of armor. But they're not physical, they're spiritual. That's why you know the breastplate is righteousness, the shoes are the gospel, your belt is truth, and you have the you know, the sword of the spirit. They're not physical battles. They're spiritual. Now, let me tell you all of that structure. Let me tell you how it works. Why is it that chapter one has an extended part of blessing and then right after it in chapter two, it talks about you are dead and you live according to the prince of the power of the air and all the demons and all the hosts. Why? Because he wants to tell you, here's how great your spiritual blessings are, that you have defeated every part of the invisible world that you cannot see. Here's how he wants you to live. You can't see it, but your greatest problems are defeated. Sin and hell and death and the demons and Satan himself, the power of the air, all of that Spiritual reality has been conquered. Jesus did at the end of chapter one. When he died and rose again on the dead, he conquered everything. So here's how you function. Your greatest realities are invisible. And in that world, through Christ, you have already won. So guess how that, what that means? That means in the world that you can see, you should live differently. You shouldn't live by everyone else. So why would we be materialistic? Why would we live as if the greatest pleasures come from things that money can buy? Why wouldn't we be the most generous, sacrificial, giving people on the planet? Only when we can't realize the wealth that we already have spiritually. We can't, we can't understand and grasp the wealth that spiritual reality has given us in Christ because we live in Ephesus, we live in Hamilton, but sometimes we don't live out in Christ. It's our problem 
Visible realities dominate our minds and our thinkings. And to get down on our knees and spend time with God praying to a reality that we hardly even acknowledge is difficult for us, unfortunately. Chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 3, and verse 15, the little phrase, in heaven and on earth, is repeated because throughout this entire epistle to the Ephesians, Paul is going back and forth between this tension about heaven and earth, what you can see, what you can see, heavenly places, but living on an earthly realm. How do you do it? How are people in Ephesus to be able to resolve the tension of God is cosmic on the throne, but I still have opposition on the earth as a Christian? How do I put those two together? Because what I can see, it looks like God's not on the throne, but you tell me in the spiritual world, he's conquered everything. Doesn't look like it in my life. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like, wow, king of the universe, could you come down here and put a little king stuff going on in this? What, do we, what happens when he doesn't? How do you handle it? How do you work through it? And here's what Paul says that we need. What did Elijah, ready for class review? What did Elijah need for his servant to have happen to him so that he could see that the reality that he was missing was completely the reverse of what he's experiencing? What did Elijah have to do for him? He had to pray. Oh, Lord, what did he say? Open his eyes that he can see. And when the Lord opened his eyes, everything changed. Now, isn't it strange that after the reality of the spiritual blessings that Paul tells us structures the first 14 verses, what would be the first thing he does in the next paragraph? Read for yourself. Chapter 1, if you would, Ephesians. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to do this for you because Elijah did this for his servant and this is how you're going to make it through a world when the two realities, invisible and visible, don't seem to mesh. He says, and I'll read it from 15 contextually, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Remember we said the greatest expression that we see those realities that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Ready? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Open their eyes, Lord. To what? That you may know what is the hope, not hopelessness when you look at the world around you, and your circumstances, and the opposition, and the suffering, and the difficulty, and the hardships, and the loneliness. Not the hopelessness, but open their eyes, Lord, so they can look at this reality through this reality. You ever read Revelation 4 and 5 side by side? And did you ever run to this? Why has Revelation Revelation 4 and 5 come before Revelation 6? Um, because that's how the numbers work, Pastor Walker. No, there weren't numbers in chapters back then. Chapter four and five is a vision of a throne in heaven where God is on the throne and the Lamb of God is next to him who has been slain and conquered. 
And they're singing songs to him over and over again. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. No one can open the scroll. And the scroll is sitting there. And finally, no one can do it. The lamb comes. He picks it up. He opens it up. And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And they go through all this stuff of heavenly visions of God on the throne and his sovereignty. And why? Why does knowing and seeing all that matter? Because chapter 6 starts the tribulation period. That's why. You know how the only way you can be prepared for all the things you're going to face if you're still on the earth and you become a believer is if you see everything down here from up there. How can you get through your problems and not just survive but thrive? How can you get through the problems and the troubles that you face and bring glory to God and give him the worship and adoration? You could never do it, never do it unless you can see this by this. Read the book of Job. I've been studying it for worship series I'm working on. You know what? It's hard for, for, for Job and for all of his gainsayer friends who rip on him and critique him wrongfully. You know why they do it wrongfully? Because they only have a partial reality world. There's no devil doing anything in it. Job doesn't realize that Satan has come after him. And this is a big test of what, whether he worships God for being God or for what God gives him. He doesn't know that, and therefore he doesn't know how to respond. And He does a great job, truthfully. And then his friends don't know how to critique him because they can't factor all that in because they haven't seen that either. And isn't it crazy that all these millennials, millenniums later, after all the revelation we've been given, we act like that. We act like somehow we don't know those realities and truths. Now, let me tell you, spiritual warfare. Remember I told you I'd give you the one-minute soundbite? <laughs> spiritual warfare, listen, no matter what you read or hear other places, this is not, spiritual warfare is not you telling demons or Satan to get lost. It is not exorcisms like on the movies on TV. That's all hogwash. Read the Bible about spiritual warfare. It's not you doing anything to demons or Satan. It's you acknowledging what they are doing and what God himself has done and responding to the things they put in your path rightly. But it's not casting out devils. It is not rebuking Satan and his power. Can I tell you, what's the reality invisibly? Who's already done all that? Jesus. We don't need to do any of that. So these people who go around casting out and telling you in the name of Jesus and I casting down imaginations and I, all that stuff isn't right. That's not how the Bible functions. That's not our job. That's not spiritual warfare. What is spiritual warfare? We put on the pieces that God's given us out of his heavenly armor and, and we, we live in his righteousness. We live in his truth. We live in his holiness. We live out his gospel. We obey his word. That's how we fight. That's how we fight. And we live out by faith because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. That's our reality. So should we think about the invisible world? Yes. Not just think about it. It's our foundation. It is the reason why we know full reality. Now listen, there's not a devil behind every tree and you can't blame Satan for all of your choices. He is influential but not determinative. And although he can tempt and he can entice and there's all kinds of things that he can do, he cannot put anything in your heart to make you do anything. Now let me tell you the offset with two minutes left. 
That means our culture and nothing in our world, hear me, nothing in our world is neutral. Nothing. Your kids do not go to a neutral school. You do not work at a neutral job. You do not work where things are honky-dory and really nice, as nice as it can be sometimes. We live in a world that is controlled by the devil, period. Which doesn't mean that you could say, whew, I could see the devil in my boss today, that's for sure. (laughs) Or look at my wife, honey, I'm going to have to cast that out of you. That's not the idea. No, but we function in a world where there is spiritual wicked in high places. And I'll quote Sandy. We wrestle not, and the word is agonizo. We don't struggle and agonize. And it's bad. let me tell you this, it is a warfare. That's why it's an agony, because to get down on your knees and pray to the point like Jesus, where you drips and sweat blood, the agony wasn't being crucified as awful and horrible as that was. It was the spiritual reality that frightened him the most. But see, he knew the reality of the invisible. He knew all of that. And here's what he wants us to understand, that see, this is the power that we need. Lastly, the book of Ephesians begins and ends with the same exact Greek construct sentence. Chapter 1, verse 9, it says, according to the might of his very power. And then he ends the book with chapter 6 and verse 10 in the armor. He says, put on the armor of God and all of his mighty power. See, our problem is, is power for us is everything that we know that we can do in our own strength and wisdom and might. And here's what he wants you to know. When you figure out that the individual, invisible reality is that important, you will understand and begin to find out that that's real power. Power is not because of the position you have or the name on your office door or the degrees behind that you've achieved. None of that is power, and I'll be frank, honest. In Biden's speech, and I'm not saying him, any president's State of the Union, that is not power. There is no ultimate power in the White House. There's power. It's not ultimate. Because the power is in God's house. That's the spiritual power that we need to live our lives Every single day, no matter what comes our way. And Paul says, I'm going to pray for you. I pray for our church and pray for you that God would open our eyes to see the realities of what's taking place in our families, our marriages, our society, our culture, our country, and see it for what it really is and realize that we are in an agonizing struggle We are in a battle, and it's no joke. This isn't a playground. It's a battleground. And as Peter would say, the devil walks around as a warring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he is out to devour your marriage and your children and your faith every day. And we need to realize this is no playground. We are in a battle. But can I tell you this? It's already been won. That's the reality that we do live by. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. We have flattened our faith so many times 
to think that really there's only natural cause and effect going on in our world. And we forget about supernatural cause and effect. And we don't see that there are forces at work way beyond flesh and blood. But Father, we have been given spiritual wealth. Paul calls it an inheritance that we can't see yet, but it has been reserved for us in heaven, Peter says. And it will be given to us by our Savior, whom we love but have not seen. Oh, Jesus, we see you. We see you. We see you on your throne. We see you as the lamb that was slain. We see you as the lion of Judah. We see you as the one who has done the greatest exercise ever of the devil when you died and rose again. Blessed be your name. Oh, God, Help us to live differently. Help us to pray differently because we understand and have eyes to see, as Hebrews says, that which is invisible. And we'll thank you and give you all the glory as we fight the fight of faith that we may lay hold on eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.